Hello, and welcome to a real human episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today, we're reviewing part one of our Engine Power trilogy with 2011's Drive. We'll jump into five-point inspection with The Scorpion and the Frog, The Winding Road, Rhythmic Narration, I Saw the Light, and Love at First Sight. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Oh, yeah, no, hell yeah. Yeah, no, Bernie, I love that. I, I, I think the fog, it kind of really makes the neon lights pop. So I think we're going for stylized but gritty. Oh, yeah, no, of course, yeah, it has to be dangerous. So stylized, dangerous, and gritty. God damn it. Uh, That's hey, it. I, I fucking had it. Uh, Bernie, let me call you back, man. Brett just walked in. Hey, dude, what, what's up? Well, you remember our little rodent problem at the shop? Yeah, I've got some traps out here in my office. Well, it looks like it's become a big rodent problem. I left my office for maybe five minutes and came back to a three-foot fucking rat enjoying my sandwich, all right? I'm done. I've already called the exterminator. Damn, yeah. I guess it is time to bring the professionals in. Uh, but hey, listen, if you have a minute, I wanted to pitch you Bernie's vision for the Hollywood Shop Shop commercial. Jesus, man, it feels like we've been working on that commercial for like six months. And, and who's Bernie? Uh, listen, you, you can't rush art, and it's it's Bernie Rose. Dude, he produced a ton of those sexy thrillers in the 80s. You know, that European flair? No, not really. Let's just get something in the can. We, we just need to get out an ad out there because... Oh, oh, fuck. Hey, there it is. Get it, get it away from me. Get it away from me. You little fucker. Is that a piece of pastrami? Uh, grab that broom, hit it, hit it, hit with the broom or something. Or stomp on it, whatever works. Uh, hey, I, I think you got it, man. Uh, Brett? Okay, well, I, I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable. I'm gonna go review Drive. You can join me whenever you get done with this. A mysterious stunt driver finds himself in an inescapable situation after his life collides with his neighbors. While trying to help erase a prison debt, the driver becomes entangled with a local crime family resulting from a botched robbery that just so happens to also be a setup. Can the stuntman escape the violent life he seems to have left behind, or is he doomed to crash back into it? Alrighty Travis, before we jump into 5 point inspection I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 2011's. Drive. I really hope you have some critiques of this movie, you know, things that you didn't like necessarily, because <laughs> I'm going to do my best not to just fillet this movie for an hour and a half. Um, so I'll, I'll try to I'll try to play devil's advocate early on, because uh, I don't know. Did you see this movie when it was new back in 2011? Um, I don't. Yes. I don't think I saw it like in theaters. I think it was like shortly after it hitting video release. Somebody's like, you haven't, you have to see drive. And I watched it. And that, that was my, I, the only reason I'm giving that preference is because my only experience has been home theater. Like I've never seen it like in an actual theater setting, but I have seen it before. Yes. 
So I did see it theatrically. Um, the person that I saw it with um, was incredibly disappointed in the movie. And I think that's a, a, a whole separate take. I think the marketing of this movie set you up for not exactly what you see on screen. They got um, sued for it. Wait, what? Yeah, they actually got sued for it because apparently I didn't know the marketing because I, I got it word of mouth um apparently they marketed it like a fast and furious movie and a woman actually sued them because it was not the experience she got which by the way it's a, it's a movie ticket all right the first <laughs> like the amount of time and effort it takes to sue for a movie ticket to me is ridiculous but yes no they they were actually sued for the i guess false advertising for this movie yeah, if you don't like a movie, go to the box office, get a refund, um, and you might inadvertently be helping the employees of that theater, if you know what I'm saying, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that was the exact experience my friend had watching it because they were very much more looking for a Fast and Furious experience, which, uh, needless to say, this is not fast and furious uh that being said i'm not going to try to hide my love for it uh we can get into the specifics of why i love it in five points but uh yeah it was definitely a trojan horse of a movie uh yeah it's i think it's going to be one of those episodes where both of us just kind of fanboy over this movie because i remember very much enjoying the movie but even going back because a lot of times we enjoy a movie and when you go back and you you try and look at it through a critical eye you're like yeah, it's this whole subjective, objective thing. It's still it's still an absolutely phenomenal movie. I mean, the first checkbox it hits is it's under two hours, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's an hour, 40 minutes long. And it's one of those, like, I think it's it's a slow burn. If if you have not seen it, um, it is a slow burn movie. I didn't I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. It does pick up very quickly. It's funny to talk about. You know, one of our biggest criticisms with Horns was that the third act is just so tonally different than the first two acts. I think this is one of those where you could have somebody argue, well, what about Drive? Isn't Drive the same one? And it's not because tonally it's the same. It's just the pacing changes drastically in the third act because it's, again, the tone of the movie doesn't really alter. It, it just, like I said, it goes from zero to 60, <laughs> you know, to make our car reference here. Uh, but with that said, I, I, I absolutely love this movie. Like it's, it's not one I'm going to sit down and, and just have playing in the background. It's a movie I'm going to sit down and intently watch and love almost every second of the movie. Yeah. And I think before we get into the five points, another reason this was kind of a Trojan horse movie is, you know, you've got the charismatic, good looking Ryan Gosling as your lead. And then you have him say, maybe 10 to 12 lines of dialogue the whole movie. So again, people who were going in expecting Fast and Furious apparently brought a lawsuit over it. I can also imagine people, you know, in love with Ryan Gosling from The Notebook and, and Crazy Stupid Love, which, you know, came out the same year. And then you have him just, I'll say comatose, but I don't mean that as an insult. Mm -hmm. um, he's just a man of few words. I think echoing, reserved, insanely reserved. Yeah. Yep. And I think certainly channeling and I think the director was quoted, so I'm, I'm not really going on a limb here, but kind of doing that Clint Eastwood man with no name energy. Mm -hmm. and, and I think he pulls it off uh, perfectly, uh, which is another reason I love the movie. Yeah. So as we talk about his dialogue, I think we can go ahead and, and start our five point inspection here. And I, I want to start with love at first sight because it leads very much into that. The lack of dialogue. Um, apparently, Ryan Gosling 
like that that was intentional like there was a lot more dialogue especially between him and carrie that are his character and carrie that that they cut out because they thought that it was unnecessary i i think ryan actually had a lot of creative involvement in making this movie like i he really wanted to make it happen but it's one of those things where in a lot of movies when you have that almost fairy tale love at first sight type situation it's almost like an, an eye roller like okay like this is where i have to start my suspension of disbelief because like how do they become this infatuated or anything like that and like this movie does such a fantastic job with like actually believing that like there is a an affection between these two characters and like they're not talking it's just kind of like these silent smirks and enjoying each other's company and i don't even know to that extent like i was gonna ask you do you think the fact that they don't have sex in this movie actually makes what they have more intimate because we don't there's there's no like throwing them into a sex scene it's like everything they have is just basically right there what we've seen and it, it, it's just it's a chemistry between them rather than having to do the whole like making love scenario like this is this you know we're physically showing them their connection oh a hundred percent i i think that works so well in this movie um, down to the fact that really the only time they have any sort of embrace is in the elevator. And we know what then directly happens after the, that they kiss in the elevator. Um, so yeah, it, it, it feels like a, almost a, a teenage romance in that sense. Like they are mm -hmm. just so enamored with the idea of one another. You don't need the, you know, throw her against the wall, you know, passionate love scene. So yeah, I think it <laughs> makes it the more table. effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it hundred percent makes it more effective that it's most of the movie. You can tell they're just longing for each other. They just, the world is doing everything it can to keep the two apart. Um, and then, the, like I said, the one time they, they get to show that physical affection, it's it's followed by the most violent scene in the movie, probably. Yeah, it's, it's basically the long kiss goodbye is what that scene winds up being. Um, yeah, I I don't I probably have some of that for Scorpion and the Frog. I know we tend to bounce around, but I love that scene because to me it is it's driver because Ryan Gosling's character never gets a name in this movie. Mm hmm. It's that moment I think he realizes what's going on. I'm going to have to kill this hitman. Irene is going to see me for what I really am. So this is my last moment to try to to show her the affection inside of me because she's about to see the the scorpion in me, so to speak. Mm. Well, yeah, because it's right after the scene where basically she slaps him and he realizes they're not going to run away into the sunset together. So I think it is he's realized at that moment this this is ultimately the kiss goodbye like i he doesn't know if he's coming back from this but even if he does survive like there is no future for them after she's seen the level of brutality he's going to show on that that elevator yeah i don't i want to make sure i don't think he necessarily thought it was over because of the slap i thought as soon as he saw and and he knew instantly and again mm -hmm. For such a minimal performance from Ryan Gosling, when that elevator opens and the guy's like, hey, sorry, wrong floor, you instantly can read on Gosling's face that that character knows exactly why that guy's in that elevator. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, again, I just think Gosling does such a great job acting, but the opposite of big. Everything that he does is subtle and small, but it, it reads perfectly on the screen. Mm -hmm. I... I totally agree with that uh so that was most of what i had for love at first sight i just i thought that the 
the chemistry between the two leads was was actually very good considering they have so few lines like it, it just feels so believable and real and it's funny because it feels real and to your point with the whole it like a high school love like it does feel like a puppy dog love it feels very mature especially when you have ryan gosling's character come in and like the first thing he says to benicio is do you want a toothpick like he has no idea how to interact with children like that's his first thought is like i have a toothpick can i offer you this as like as a gift or something like that you know as, as an icebreaker and it's like you don't give a kid a toothpick <laughs> regardless of their age like that's just what like, you want a toothpick like I, I what do i do in this situation well and i think that's a perfect example. Ryan Gosling's character, Driver, seems like, and, and again, I, I did some research on this movie uh, because I've, over the years, because I've always loved it, but Gosling talks about how he perceives the character of Driver as being somebody who was kind of raised on movies. He doesn't have any real world experience. Everything that he, is through the lens of what would a movie character do. And he thinks the toothpick is cool. So, hey, why wouldn't a kid think the toothpick is cool? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it really hits home the, the opening speech of the movie where he's talking about, hey, you've got me for those five minutes. Anything in that time, I'm yours. Anything outside of it, I'm, I'm gone. It's such a great line. And then you realize this is the line that he uses every time he gets a job. Because, again, mm. it feels like he's just his only life experience is through movies. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounded like we were kind of transitioning into the scorpion and the frog. Did you want to go ahead and, and start us with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is just an excuse to talk about all the characters in the movie because I want to talk about them first, but I think a lot of these characters suffer from the same fatal flaw. Um, obviously, we talked about Ryan Gosling as as the driver and Irene. Number one, their performances are very understated. I think the movie does a good job of then surrounding them with characters who go for a little bit more. I mean, Ron Perlman in this movie is is over the top, to say the least. <laughs> yes, he's... I will say, if... Okay, so, Travis, you started this with, do I have a criticism for this movie? My only criticism is, I think, Ron, at times, at times, Ron Perlman feels like he doesn't belong in this universe, where, like, the thing was, like, he's looking at the car, he's like, this is a pussy wagon, or something like... He says something like that, and you're just like... This feels so out of like, I don't know if this was ad libbed. I don't know if it's the way he decided to deliver the line, but like, it just feels like almost like a comedy at the point, the way he says that, like this, right? This is a, this is my pussy wagon. This is a real car. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like, and, and then his, know, his whole delivery about, you know, him that, you know, the family that calls him a, a, a kike and all that, like that whole thing. Ron Perlman's performance, I just in general, I don't think I like Ron Perlman. He might be the only thing where I was, I don't know if he was maybe the right, the right role for, or the right casting for this. And I realized like that was, I guess, him coming into that. That was kind of what he wanted. Is he wanted to be a Jewish, like a New York Jewish boy who was who wanted to be an Italian mobster, and like that that was the backstory he wanted. Like they did it. He just his performance feels so out of place with everybody else because so, of how subdued, even Brian Cranston, who was like a motor mouth and talked all the time, he was never as loud and as boisterous as, as Ron Perlman was as Nino. <laughs> I agree. The only reason I like it is because it, it does still, it does still feel intentional uh, mm -hmm. because 
one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Driver puts on the the mask that he was wearing for the movie production. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of stalking Nino. And Nino is a clown. The, the movie directly portrays him as that. But you see him as he's looking through the window of Nino's restaurant. And Nino is is on full 10. You don't hear any volume. It's just, it's visual. But, you know, he's drunk. He's sloshing his glass around. He's playing the court jester for everybody. So I almost, I almost like, it does feel a little bit out of place, but I don't mind it because it's a nice counterweight to everybody else playing a little more subdued than normal. Well, and um, it also leads back to his criticism of, like, why do people treat him like a child? It's like, because he acts like a child, you know? A hundred percent. And he's the first example that I have of, are you familiar with the term out in front of your skis? I am not, but I'm, I feel like I'm going to learn something here. It basically is, I, I didn't think we would get into this, but if you watch the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, which are occurring now, uh, the ski jump, when people get out in front of their skis, it leads to disaster because mm. aerodynamics, etc. cetera. Uh, or you could even look at it like somebody's reach exceeds their grasp kind of thing. Okay. Nino's downfall is all the disrespect that he gets from the East Coast family leads him to try to pull off the, the pawn shop heist because ultimately he's the one behind it. I didn't think the movie, if I can complain, I didn't think the movie did a good job of setting that up necessarily. Um, it wasn't the setup. It was the and there. Maybe there was a throwaway line. I have missed both times I watched this movie about who Blanche is and where she came from. But when when Driver goes to the strip club to get uh, Cook, that was the only part. I'm like, how does he know that he's at the strip club? I'm like, was there a random line where like he makes the connection that Blanche came from the strip club? So that's probably where she met Chris, the Chris Cook, the the guy who set up the whole job. I'm like, that's the only part in the movie. I'm like, there has to be a deleted scene that they get because that's the only part where I'm like this. I don't understand how we got like logically where we got from. I'm going to go call Bernie and find out what's going on to driver knowing where he needs to go to find Cook and, and send a message. Yeah, I, I'm trying to rack my brain. I I, th- I think that middle section is the sloppiest of the movie. And, and maybe it's a casualty of trying to keep a tight runtime. But, yeah, I agree with you. That whole the robbery, how he finds Cook, it felt a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like I said, Nino goes for the million dollars, the ripoff. And then ultimately he does not realize, hey, I the driver is is not to be trifled with. And that leads to his death. Um and you mentioned Brian Cranston already as Shannon. Loved, loved his performance. So warm. Mm. I also love, though, and I think this is something that I noticed upon this rewatch. Bernie sets up Shannon as a guy who has bad luck, but he's also a little greedy. You know, he overcharged mm-hmm. Bernie, and then he tried to do the same shit with Nino, which is what got his pelvis broken. But Cranston does a good job of just dropping in his level of greed. I don't know if you notice those lines where like he tries with, to take the money. Yeah. He, he's like, Hey, I can hide it for you. Number one. And then mm-hmm. even before that, when he, whenever he got driver, the stunt job, he's like, Hey, I, I, uh, you know, I negotiated for a raise for you, but I need 50% of that. Right. Um, but even Shannon, again, 
he's his his eyes are bigger than his stomach. He wants to, you know, run this race team and everything. And ultimately, that kind of is what leads him to getting killed. Um, and then lastly, Bernie Albert Brooks. Have you a ever performance seen Albert I thought Brooks? I'd never see? Yeah, a performance <laughs> I never you. thought I'd see from Albert Brooks. <laughs> and I don't feel like he's done it since. This feels like a one off. Mm -hmm. Which is fine because I don't know if he could do like I. It's it was the scene in in the di in the the pizzeria or the Italian restaurant where he realizes that he has to kill Cook and he's like he rolls his eyes and goes over and grabs the fork and you're just like you can like again, what a beautiful performance like the amount that's that's said in just his actions right like he doesn't have to like this is ridiculous it's just a matter of like he <laughs> like he looks over. Just nods like if we're gonna have to kill the driver and Shannon, then I'm gonna have to kill your boy Cook. And Nino's like, okay, fine, like that's fair. <laughs> like, also, it's great to see Crime Boss who's not afraid to get his hands dirty, right? Like the fact that Bernie's willing to do all of this himself. Like he doesn't have to hire someone else so that he can keep it close. Yeah, and that holds true to the end of the movie because he tries to kill Driver in the parking lot, mm. and even like you said the minimal dialogue he doesn't have to do it through boisterous performances even in the restaurant when he's asked he asked driver you know where's the money and the and driver says it's in the car he doesn't even verbally say let's go get it i, I don't mm -hmm. this is very specific but he kind of just nods his head and makes a, a slight sound of like let's you know let's go get it mm -hmm. the albert brooks performance again i incredible but also to my theme He's an ex-movie producer who is now trying to be kind of this mobster slash venture capitalist. And he gets out over his skis and he pays for it with his life. Mm -hmm. So not only do I think the acting performances are great, I, I like the through line of everybody just kind of getting in a little bit above their head. And you can really say that about Irene. I don't think Irene wanted to marry a... I mean, I'm standard is basically a gangbanger, right? Yeah. Like he's a low level yeah. criminal. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the life Irene wanted. So again, kind of just got in over their head. Things got out of control. It holds true for everybody in this movie, except maybe driver. Well, even to your, to, to further your point, like Irene getting in over her head, she's still married and she's starting a somewhat romantic relationship with driver, which again, leads to driver wants to give standard help standard out like it, it all goes back to again kind of like you're saying getting out in front of your your skis like had she just kind of been like oh he's just the neighbor and all that but like it's very clear that there is a, a certain level of affection and romanticism that's going on between irene and driver right so and then she doesn't really want to be with standard but now like she's in this place what does she do yeah yeah I'm, I, that's a Great point about Irene, too. So, yeah, again, just on the base level, having such subdued acting by your two leads and then surrounding them with these colorful characters. The, the casting, the performances, it's just, just perfect to me. Well, even go, you know, going back to Bernie, he just he's no nonsense from the beginning. And I think it, it adds to the movie because I'm just thinking. When they decide to, the movie does a great job of, of setting up all of its deliverables, right? So when Bernie explains how Shannon got his pelvis broken, they have already set up in a previous, very brief dialogue 
that it was a result of his like something between him and Nino. And then they deliver further on like, okay, we've planted the seed. So, you know, something happened. Now we're going to explain what happened. But like, I feel like in most movies today, that would have been some kind of weird flashback or it would have been some heartfelt scene that was drawn out between Shannon talking to Driver about, you know, back when I I had ambitions and blah, blah. And like, but no, this movie just does a great job. Like Bernie, like very strict to the floor, like this is what happened. So like, just realize like, don't put yourself in the same position as Shannon. And like, I just love how straightforward it is. Like they got right to the point what we needed to know from that that from that scene. It's it's perfectly delivered. It's perfectly received by by Ryan Gosling. And then we moved on and we didn't linger. It was fantastic. And I also think from a character perspective, um, he is telling Bernie is telling the driver that because their previous interaction, you could tell. You know, Bernie went to shake his hand, which I love this line. Oh, the, the such driver a great scene. Refuses to shake his hand and then kind of says, well, you know, my hands are dirty. And Bernie says, you know, mine are too. There's so much going on there. Bernie is telling him like, hey, I'm not to be trifled with either. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like Bernie perceived that disrespect. And that's why later he tells him, hey, it seems like you don't give a shit. But I know you give a shit about Shannon. And guess what? Last time yeah. Shannon pulled this kind of shit, he got, uh, you know, an injury that will hurt him for the rest of his life. Next time, maybe we kill him. So yeah. you need to get in line. You don't want to shake my hand. That's fine. But understand what the stakes are. And like you said, so many movies would do that through three or four scenes and a flashback. This movie does it with 30 seconds of dialogue and absolutely nails it. Well, and what I love about again, when I talk about they they start something in a previous scene and then you immediately should know something's going to happen later in that exact same scene, Bernie wants to shake driver's hand. Driver doesn't want to do it. As soon as that handshake is done, Shannon tries to shake Bernie's hand and Bernie doesn't want to shake his hand. And then later in the movie is when Bernie puts out his hand to shake Shannon's hand and then slices his wrist. And you're just like, again, it's these setups like oh no, like he didn't shake his hand before and now he's going to shake his hand. Like I just, I, there's so much of that in this movie where it's like, especially if you go back and rewatch it where it's like they plant so much and there's so many little payoffs to the way that the characters interacted. I just, again, I can't, I don't have enough praise for this movie. Yeah, I mean, so much for you counterbalancing my fellatio because it sounds like we're just gonna, you know, <laughs> tag team drive here. I mean, and to, it's not a perfect movie. Like we've already brought up Ron Perlman was uh, while he was, I think he was okay in the role. I do think he was, he winds up being what sticks out. And I think it is because of how boisterous he is. Um, he just, he winds up being louder than any other character in, in the movie. Um, and then, you know, there, there's just, there's little things that the, the kind of heist that that whole setup is, is interesting and, and a little, a little clunky, I think, but, Again, it's just it's so let me just say uh, if I can find one criticism of this movie, one legitimate criticism. The chase scene following the pawn shop robbery is not great. Um, If you look at it from like an editing perspective, there's Mm -hmm. a you can kind of tell that Nicholas Winding Refn, the movie, the movie's director, was not used to staging that kind of action and or they didn't have the budget to do it. So you can really tell if you watch that, it's not a cohesive action scene. You can tell that they 
hey, we've got one day to shoot a bunch of car shit and then stitch it all together. So yeah, if, if I can lodge one real complaint, it's that the action didn't deliver there. And I guess that, you know, I guess I should have sued somebody. <laughs> yeah, I think that is, it's definitely a result of, like to, to your point, I th- maybe they didn't have the budget or the experience because it is shot more as a, I, I don't know how else to say this, like a thriller of a car chase rather than an action car chase. Like it's supposed to just create some suspense as they're being chased, but that's, that's it. It's very surface level. Like, Oh, I'm being chased. That's the suspense that you're getting is that he's being chased by another car, but you already know that he's this expert driver. So you're not necessarily super worried about him getting away. Yeah. If anything on my, you know, fifth rewatch, I was kind of just like, if he's such a great driver, why is he not just dusting this Chrysler 300? Because Again, I'm getting into the weeds here, but a 5.0 Mustang uh, is much lighter, much more maneuverable. He would have been able to easily evade them if he was the type of driver presented mm-hmm. in the rest of the movie. But again, that's a that's a nitpick. Uh, well, that I mean, let's go into into Winding Road then, because I think you know we're talking a little bit about the director there. Okay, here's where I'm gonna bitch. <laughs> Wait, we just got done saying we couldn't say enough great things about this and then immediately <laughs> not not for this movie here here's the thing the reason i love this movie is because mm-hmm. it feels like walter hill which i don't know if you know he, he directed a movie called the driver back in the 70s which mm-hmm. is eerily similar to this movie in the high level premise but this movie feels like walter hill meets high-level art house film Mm -hmm. uh like the elevator scene he kisses her the lights dim in the elevator that that's all artistic that's not that's not what you see in a, a an action picture typically um but it it felt like the perfect counterbalance between art house and you know a thriller action drama and this movie was so successful that, again, the director, Nicholas Winding Refn, he was after watching Drive, I was like, he's a director that if he puts anything out, much like Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. I'm going to see it. His follow up two films are unwatchable to me. <laughs> like it's it's almost which, which it's, one it, has Gosling in it, doesn't it? Yeah, Only God Forgives was yeah. directly following this with Gosling. And it feels like, like you said, Gosling had a hand in this. Uh, with they felt like they were partners in this movie in, in terms of, of trimming stuff from the script, making sure this wasn't just a standard action picture. And it was so successful that it feels like they then kind of got high on their own supply and were like, hey, we can do anything with the next one. And Only God Forgives <laughs> is... I don't use this lightly because we have watched a lot of shit for Hollywood Chop Shop, Brett. Gothica. Gothica is infinitely more watchable than Only God Forgives. Wow. <laughs> okay. Have you seen it? No, I've, I, this is the thing is I'm pretty sure I saw the trailers for it and I was like, oh my God, it's going to be like another drive. And then I heard that it was terrible. And then just, I was like, I will just pass on this. I, I normally hate the the take of like, oh, God, they're, you know, they're trying to be too much of an artist. That's that's only God forgives. And then the neon demon, which follows it. So 
And then I, apparently, and I have not watched it, Nicholas Winding Refn also did a series for Amazon, um, Too Old to Die Young, I believe it's called, with Miles Teller. Yep. If you had told me that that was coming out, like if that came out the year after Drive, I would have, even if I wasn't subscribed to Amazon, I would have paid a subscription to watch it. By the time I reached that point, I was like, I'm out on Nicholas Winding Refn. Wow. He wants to be a contrarian artist in the worst possible way. And I, it seems like he peaked with Drive probably because he had a some level of studio interference, uh, which was gone by the time he made his next two movies. Yeah, and it looks like after Neon Demons, he didn't, he just stuck to TV. Yeah, and the TV show, as far as I know, was not well-received either. So the only thing I'm hopeful for at this point along this winding road is that he needs some money and is willing to work with a little bit more of a strict eye in terms of mm-hmm. studio interference or editor interference. Uh, because left to his own devices, it's clear that this dude just wants to do weird shit. I mean, I Brett, would say because... The, the only other thing on this list that I've seen is Bronson, which I liked Bronson. Bronson's also weird, though. Weird as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And let me just tell you, for anybody who hasn't seen The Neon Demon, which, of course, includes you, Brett. <laughs> what? Uh, you hated it and you're giving me shit for not seeing it. No, no, I'm not giving you shit. I'm not giving Brett, you it. You yeah, son of a bitch. Apologies. I was referring <laughs> to Only God Forgives. There is a scene where, spoilers... The mother of Ryan Gosling, who is played by Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, she's kind of a, a little bit of a mafioso, kind of a, who was the lady in Game of Thrones, Circe? Yeah. She's kind of a Circe uh, in modern day. Uh, she ends up getting killed, and Ryan Gosling, her son, the, the bullet wounded her stomach, he then decides to insert his hand into... Huh. I'll, I'm just going to let that hang there. He just he puts his hand in the the open wound of his I dead think mother. You're, no, here's the problem. You're getting the fifth element confused with this movie. I think Neon Demon fifth element like, yeah, when they have to get the the like the, the capsule things out of the singer's torso. Isn't that what happens there? <sighs> yeah, well, again, I, I was only God forgives, not Neon Demon. But yes, that, oh, okay. that happens in a non Luke Besson side. There's no discernible reason. He just, hmm. he does it. So, okay, yeah. Nicholas Winding Refn, there's another great movie in him. I just hope that he realizes he needs some sort of outside influence to, to help him along. He sounds like he might be a little bit of a George Lucas as far as I'm concerned. You know, George Lucas is only as good as the boundaries of the people around him. Because he's a visionary, but he gets a little outside of himself if you don't have someone to, to kind of course correct him. Would you say, Brett, that maybe Nicholas Winding Refn gets out over his skis? You know, I've heard that. Yeah, I think that's that I, would be a perfect way. To, yeah. There you go. So, yeah, that that's what I had for Winding Road. It doesn't sound like you've seen his work outside of Drive. So and if, Drive if and Bronson any, is all I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't have anything else, we can definitely move on. No. Um, so in terms of like art house and stuff like that, uh, one of the things that I... <laughs> The lighting in this movie, um, we'll do with, uh, I, I saw the light. I thought the lighting in this movie is just, it's so fantastic. And so, again, it adds to the mood so much that 
they say so much through the lighting and the angles that you don't have to use dialogue. There's so many of the shots with him, the driver driving, <laughs> the driver driving, um, where like these upward shots where like they're just very powerful angles and the way that they play with shadows and light. I, it's just it's it's a gorgeous movie to sit and watch. Like I even before the elevator scene where he kisses or driver kisses Irene, I remember the first time they step in the elevator, I'm like, oh my God, the light in this is so warm and like it's just it's fantastic the way that they've shot this this elevator scene. And then even some of the the setting, you know, with the apartments and stuff like that. Like it's just it's a it's a very gorgeous movie. Uh, there's a scene towards the end where he's standing on what is appears to be like a, a fire escape or something like that, and he's calling Bernie and just the way the shadows play with the jacket, the scorpion jacket, as he's talking about the story of the scorpion and the frog and stuff like that. It's just it is it is a very gorgeously lit movie. Uh I hate to do this because again, we jump around on these five points. I forgot to ask you one question about the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you jog my memory because of the scorpion and the frog. Do you think that Bernie was actually going to let Irene go? No. I, okay, I no, agree. I, yeah. I, I thought the extent, whole... Go ahead. I, I don't think Driver thought he was either. Okay, yeah. Let me just... I forgot to mention that's my favorite scene of the movie because watching it the first time, you think... For a moment, I thought Driver was really just falling for it. Like, okay, Irene, because it, it cuts to them walking to the parking lot right after he says the girl is safe. Mm -hmm. And then Bernie stabs Driver. And then we cut back to the restaurant. I love it's technically a flashback, but barely. And Ryan Gosling just gives that smile. And I'm like, oh, no, he knows that Bernie is not to be trusted and that Bernie mm -hmm. has to die, and then you cut right back to him stabbing him in the neck. So, sorry to break the flow there. I just had to mention that last scene because I I, I love the way that was portrayed. Because the whole time you're thinking maybe Driver is an is naive enough to think that Bernie's actually going to let the girl go, but he never was. As I think they established earlier when he's telling Shannon that Shannon has to leave. I think that's. Driver is from this world. He understands like there is no coming back from this. Like Shannon. You've made a mistake. You've now put Irene in the crosshairs. You're in the cross. Like, none of us are. They're not going to let any of us live. Like, you have to go. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to derail this segment anymore, but remind me to ask you, you know, before Chop Shop, what do you think Driver's background is before this movie starts? But um, the lighting, you were talking about the lighting in the elevator. After he stomps that guy's head in, and the elevator closes, which, again, like you said earlier, that's kind of closing off Irene to him. Like, mm -hmm. hey, that's the last moment, and now the door is closed. But when he is breathing heavily and that scorpion on the back of his jacket, it looks like the scorpion itself is breathing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful shot, perfectly lit in that elevator. I love the shot when when he knocks Nino's car off the cliff and he's just standing there backlit with the mask and Nino is just on in the background and Nino is trying to to get to his feet to go off into the beach I'm like oh it's it's so imposing with him up there and like it's almost like it's weird because 
he's somewhat the villain because of the way he's doing it, but he's also the hero. So there's like this dramatic like lighting behind him, but the way he, the level of intimidation, the way he is attacking Nino, like Nino is the one in panic and fear. Even though again, it's it's the way you would traditionally have shot, where you would thought like, oh no, like Driver's the bad, he's the protect or the antagonist, he's the killer, and like he's that, Michael that Myers. Yeah, he's Michael Myers. Down yeah. to the mask. Yes. Well, even goes back to the because the identity. I'm like, he puts the mask. I'm like, the mask isn't to to hide his identity because he's wearing that jacket, like the scorpion jacket. Everyone knows that jacket, so he's not wearing the mask to hide who he is. He's wearing the mask to essentially become somebody else. You know, he. So it's yeah, it's just again fantastic. Yeah, I. Uh seeing that scene where he kills Nino on the beach, you know, it was as if I, I wonder when this is going to happen where we try to like humanize Michael Myers even more. Like it just felt like for a scene, you were through the eyes of, you know, Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers where you understand the motivation, but to Nino, yeah, you're just an unstoppable killing machine that is about to drown me in the ocean, which again, Scorpion and the frog, he drowns. I, I love that scene. I'm glad you brought it up. And yeah, it's, it's beautifully shot with like the spotlight of the, I think it's a lighthouse going mm -hmm. on the beach. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I was very excited to hear you talk about the more technical elements because I think you have a much higher level understanding and recognition for that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, I I agree with you. That shot, that whole scene was just well, beautifully it's, terrifying. It's I believe that's right after the elevator scene, and it is so much before that movie is Driver trying to control himself. Like even the scene in the strip club where he has the bullet and he just he wants to pound the bullet. What a powerful scene that is when he had he's taking the bullet like a like a nail that he's going to hammer into Cook's head right. Makes him swallow it instead. But that's, I believe, after the elevator scene, or that, that's a scene where, like, Driver's trying to show restraint. Like, after the elevator scene where he completely loses it, that's where he goes and gets the mask. Again, that, to me, is where it is. He's become somebody else. Like, he's let go. He's not trying to control it anymore. He is going after Nino. Nino. Because even with Bernie, there was some level of restraint. He was going to meet Bernie and, and, and see what that was about. But Nino, it was personal. He was like, he was not going to try and hold back. He was not going to try and be the naive driver. Like he was becoming another person to personally take out Nino. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly said because even right in the aftermath of the elevator scene, when he turns around to look at Irene, he's got a look of somebody like, I never wanted to show anybody that side of me, most especially you, because mm -hmm. uh, he almost I, I don't maybe I'm reading too much into it, but Gosling almost looks embarrassed. He doesn't even it's not even as if, hey, I just committed a murder. It's just I'm embarrassed that you saw me do that. Well, yeah, because up until that point, anytime where he's shown that level of aggression, he it's almost like he has a Jacqueline Hyde and it's his gloves. 
right? Everyone, I think you want to think of it as his jacket because it's the scorpion jacket and it's so cool. And even at the beginning when he flips the jacket, it's reversible and all that. But his Jacqueline Hyde moment is his gloves. And the, the, key is, uh, the, the biggest key to that is in the hotel room with Blanche when he puts those gloves on. And that's when like it doesn't like, again, it's hard. You're, you're thinking of rooting for the hero, but like he just starts to he slaps the absolute holy hell out of that woman and then intimidates the absolute hell out of her to to get the information he wants like and it's not even just intimidation like trying to scare like it's it's the truth like he was willing to absolutely unload onto her if she did not give him the information he wanted and it is it's like as soon as you saw him put those gloves on and i think that was in the elevator if i'm not mistaken he doesn't have the gloves on i think that again that that's a moment where it's like this is i you know, that was his his tell where he was allowed to lose that control and he lost it without the gloves like he he transitioned without the gloves into that kind of a person. Yeah, because Irene was there, he didn't have mm-hmm. time to kind of slip into that character. It was just I love Irene. This person's here to kill Irene. We're going gloves or not. Uh, but yeah, dude, when he's got uh, Blanche pinned down on the bed and he's like, you know, you just got a little boy's father killed. And now you're telling me lies like and he's 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 got the gloved fist right in her face. And then even when she starts to tell the truth, the fist turns to a point and it's just yeah, it's that's a great call with the gloves, because even the way it's shot is accentuating the gloves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will also say the scene with Blanche being shot in the sh- in the bathroom that is there's few moments in movies i've ever had a what the fuck moment but that's definitely one of i think it's that in is it edge of darkness with mel 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 gibson Gibson. yeah with the girl when she gets out of the car and just gets like plowed like that's those are one of the two moments like i'm just like oh my god like did not see that coming i will say this again having seen the movie i was like anxious because i knew it was about to happen where i was like oh my god like i know it's about to happen to her i don't know if i want to watch it like because it is so graphic just the amount of her head separating from her body when she gets shot in the head with that shotgun you're just like oh my god and i'm glad you mentioned tension too because the pawn shop robbery itself the tension of that scene is incredible. I don't, I don't know if you agree with that, mm-hmm. but just the delay and waiting for standard to come out of the pawn shop. Well, Cause I, the beauty of it, the beauty of it too, is it's the first time you've seen driver uneasy. It's the first time where you see him. He's like, come on, you come out, you come out. Like you need to, because he is going to leave in the five minutes. That's, that's his policy. And like, you actually see, but he doesn't want him. to in this case. Exactly. He's like, and I love too, to your point, after Standard gets shot the first time, he gets out of the car for a second. He's clearly mm-hmm. about to break his own rule. And then Standard gets shot again and he he's kind of snaps back to it. And that's when the car chase ensues. So, yeah, I mean, you nailed that. That's a perfect way. It's the first time we see Driver sweat and we know why. Again, he is attached to Benicio and Irene. He feels the urge to go save Standard, but then again, he snaps back to it. So, yeah. So I, I think the last five point we have is is rhythmic narration. Uh, and with that one, I just wanted to touch on I love movies 
we we've already touched on it a lot. There's not a lot of of dialogue, especially from the protagonist in this movie. I love when directors find a way to narrate without having just like driver narrating his thoughts or what's going on. And I the music that they chose for this movie does that so well. Right, the beginning with with Night Drive, of I mean, I think it sets the perfect tone after in that during those those opening credits. Uh, real human human being using that song when he's first out with Irene and, and Benicio and they're, you know, they're driving through the, the LA river. Um, and then using it again at the end, like this is, this is, he was, you talk about him being stoic and it's almost to the point or not stoic um, being what was the word. Oh, I can't believe I just blanked on it. Um, just the fact that he's, he's almost like a robot, right? No emotions or anything like that. So this is him being human. And he, you know, he says it later in the movie. I says like, this is the happiest I've ever been is when I was with you guys. But like the song beautifully illustrates. That. And then at the very end where he's become a hero, despite the fact of how violent he is and everything he's done, he is, he actually has ultimately saved them. And then when the, the party's going on, when standard is gets out of prison, the, you know, got me under your, your spell. And it's between the two of them and he's working again, the dramatic lighting where he's working on the engine part and it's just that circle light. And it's just like, he's basically alone in darkness with his thoughts and all he like, he's distracted. He's trying to work on this, this car part, but all he really wants to do is be with Irene. And like, it is just, yeah, I love when, when you use unconventional ways of explaining what's going on in the story right i don't need driver and irene to say anything we see their their glancing looks at one another and then we have kind of this song that's also establishing what the two of them are thinking are going through a hundred percent and i i pulled a quote um from brian gosling about this movie and i think it supports everything that you just said um Gosling was being interviewed about the character and what he thinks about Driver. And he says, I think that he's psychotic, but he's not a psychopath. Uh, he's a myth as well. You know, we tried to treat the film like a fairy tale, like Los Angeles is this fairy tale land based on fantasies. And the knight in his mind, he's the knight in his mind. And Irene is the damsel in distress. Bernie Rose is the evil wizard. And Ron Perlman is the dragon he needs to slay. And yep. I think that I mean, it's, the movie nails that. Yeah. No, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I've, you know, I'm not going into too much depth with some of these, just making sure we kind of, to point out what, what happened, or, you know, my observations with that. I, I'm good with five points. I think you had another question that you wanted to, to bring up. What you thought the driver's background was. Oh, yes, yes. I... I don't have any confirmation on that. I was just, I was just curious. I I can understand where we're going. Like the idea that, Oh, he lives in, in, in movies and comic books and stuff like that. And that's kind of where he gets his personality from. To me, it felt like it's, it's one of those, you don't have to tell the story without telling the story thing where I think he came from either some kind of crime family or like whatever past he was trying to get away from. Cause Shannon talks about like, he just kind of showed up one day and showed me that he could work in the garage. It just feels like, you know, driver has a history of trying to get out of these ultra violent situations that he's in. And then it goes back to your scorpion and the frog. Like 
he's a he's a scorpion like it's just his nature like he can't get out of it like he tried to go straight and become a mechanic and a stuntman but yet still finds a way to be a moonlighting getaway driver and gets him into trouble right it just felt like despite whatever his intentions are that that's just his life and that what he's always going to go back to and like being with irene and benicio was the one you know shining example like he was actually able to escape it for a small period of time and, and experience what that happiness is not being uh, you know absorbed in this life of crime yeah based upon his lack of ability to really interact with people on a human level yeah i can imagine him being some sort of he was born and raised to be some sort of hitman, some sort of violent character. And he tried to escape that because. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I think you encapsulated it perfectly. But yeah, I think he is somebody who is trying to constantly escape a violent past. But ultimately, deep down, you are what you are. A tiger never changes his stripes. A scorpion is always a scorpion. And I think the the. Other reason I love that last scene with Bernie when they're at the Chinese restaurant and Driver smiles at Bernie and Bernie looks at Driver, it almost felt like we're both scorpions. We know how this is going to end. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the parking lot. Even to the point where they didn't use guns. They both used a knife like a stinger, you know? Yep. And Driver was fully prepared for that. The only question I have, if I'm playing Monday morning quarterback like Bernie, maybe don't stab him in the stomach. Maybe you got to go for the neck. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm good on five points there. So we're going to do something a little different this week. We've decided normally we would roll into our chop shop segment where we try and turn the, this movie into a different genre of movie. But we've decided that we have a couple te- our uh, segments that we usually do after chop shop. We're, we're going to move those up. We're going to do those first and then we'll end the show out with chop shop and just our final verdict of, uh, of the movie. So those segments, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to them before our tag and title blue book, and time capsule so we'll start with tag and title if you're good with that travis absolutely uh so tag and title travis i'm going to give you three taglines for this movie one tagline is an actual tagline an official tagline for the movie one is a tagline for a movie i found adjacent to the movie and one is a tagline that I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me what the tagline for the movie is. Before I do so, how much research did you do on this movie? Are you asking if I accidentally saw the taglines? Yes. I didn't see the taglines. I might, to potentially ruin the wrap-up when we get to it, I might have seen how much it made. I did okay. not see any taglines. All right, all right, all right. So here, here are your three taglines. You'll find out why, because this one has an interesting little trivia nugget attached to it, and I wasn't sure if you read the trivia nugget that would ruin it. All right. Here are your three taglines, Travis. Tell me what is the tagline for 2011's Drive. All right, here we go. Everyone has something to hide. There are no clean getaways. And don't miss your window. Um... 
I just got to lead with it because it's one of my favorite taglines of all time. There are no clean getaways is no country for old men. Okay. Ignite, Brett, I'm right. Just don't bullshit me. So just, he's, he's doing this because I'm smirking. Give me the other two taglines and then we'll go into this. Well, I got so excited by hearing that one because I love the tagline. Uh, give me the other two. The other two are everyone has something to hide and don't miss your window. This is one of the toughest one you've ever done. I'm, I'm glad that I at least knew the no country for old men. Don't miss your window. I think that's the tagline for the movie. Okay. Uh, therefore, everyone's got something to hide. I think that's the one. I think that's the one you made up. I, I'm the least confident I've ever been. Thank God I got the I got the middle. You did and you didn't. So what do you mean? What do you mean I didn't just, get the just, middle? Just let me just let me do my thing, okay? Audience, uh, he's smirking like a motherfucker. I just have to. I have to point. That there out. There are Go no ahead. clean getaways. Was the tagline for this movie the primary tagline for this movie? The trivia nugget. The trivia nugget is this movie's tagline is the same tagline used for No Country for Old Men. So you're absolutely right. It is. I didn't think you were gonna know that. <laughs> <laughs> so they they double dipped it did have a couple other taglines i just didn't think that, i loved that tagline that's why i went with it some heroes are real which i thought was a little weird and get in get out get away were the other two official taglines for this movie and i i thought there are no clean getaways was so fantastic the other two didn't even they weren't even close not to mention, there are no clean getaways. Was used on the poster, so yes, you are. Wait, the poster for what? For drive? drive? Yeah, it there was are on no the clean poster getaways. for do- how? So yeah, again, they was used on both. You're absolutely right. And No Country for Old Men came or was was first. It came in two thousand seven. But yeah, they they double dipped on the tagline. Um, Don't miss your window was my tagline. And then everyone has something to hide was for 2005's A History of Violence. Oh, oh, I love that fucking movie. I also, History of Violence also had another tagline that I thought was perfect if it didn't use the character's name. The other tagline was Tom Stahl had a perfect life until he became a hero. And I'm like, "Mm, if you put Driver had the perfect life until he became, that was a, that's a pretty solid tagline too. So yeah, there, there were your tag and title for this week. I, uh, I'm gonna bitch at you off podcast for this. <laughs> All right, next let's do blue book. Uh, I'm gonna give you the sticker price for this here picture. Uh, what it cost to make estimated, and I want you to tell me what you think it made U.S. Canada box office, and then what it made worldwide. So. This movie cost estimated $15 million to make. What do you think it brought home here domestically? Can I ask one clarifying question? I'm probably not going to have the answer, but go for it. Is there a dramatic difference between domestic gross? There is? Yes. Okay, I'll say U.S. and Canada, it made... 67 million 
35. Damn. 35 mil US Canada. Damn. So what do you think it made worldwide? I guess so we're going to find out what how how I define dramatic and what you define dramatic as right here. <laughs> uh so including the US Canada gross with worldwide, I'm going to mm-hmm. say 79.5 million. Yeah, 77. That I assume that's the number that you accidentally saw. It, it yeah. was. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so it it doubled its money worldwide. Which on one hand, I am so happy for but on the other hand, maybe if this movie had been more of a flop, we would have got Nicholas Winding Refn not being so, quote unquote, adventurous with the shit that he produces. So this yeah. might be the one time where I wish this movie wasn't such a success. And maybe it was just a uh, a cult classic between, you know, movie fans that know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it wasn't a smashing success because, as you said, it's what three times would it cost is what you would consider it a success. And it would it's about four times, I guess, a little over four yeah, times. Yeah. So, you know, four and a half, five times. What? So, I mean, it wasn't like it was a, a it crushed it. And I mean, how often do you see that the, the foreign audiences wind up being almost the exact same as the, the domestic audience? So he is uh, uh, the director is Danish. So maybe mm-hmm. that has something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah, so it's just a fantastic, I mean, it's slow burn, a fantastic movie. So do you want to, what, what's our time capsule for this week? Uh, I actually have two. What? You're breaking the format of the show again? Well, you know what? I'll just give you one, Brad. How about I give you one here and then you can tell me if you want a second. All right, so are we going forward or back in time with this one and who are, who's our subject? Uh, there's an actor in this movie, uh, real name, uh, Andy Sandemus. Are you familiar with this actor? Uh, is that the guy who did Golem? Oh, no, uh, that's, that's Andy Circus. Yeah. Oh, guess. is this the guy who's on the Lonely Island who did Hot Rod? I'll tell you what, let me read the filmography, <laughs> see if you recognize anything that they've been in. Okay. Uh, Toad Road. Uh, Passport. Uh, the secretary three. Oh Jesus! Uh, milfs like it black. Ass oh, so he's a porn, they're a porn star. Twenty three. So they're a porn star. Let me finish the joke, Brett. <laughs> and finally, dick sauce animal style. You, you seen any of that? Uh, no, no. They all sound riveting, though. Yeah, so Andy Sandemus is the stripper outside the uh, strip club who says, you know, cooks inside. I was an actual porn actress, so shout out Andy Sandemus. If you're listening, call me. Uh, But no, my real one is uh, Cliff Martinez, who scored this movie. Um, And I know... With this particular movie, it's like, hey, you think of a real hero, a real human being. You think of that song. Mm -hmm. You think of Night Call by Kavinsky. But the actual ambient score of this movie, I fucking love. It's one of those things where if you don't pay close attention, you might not notice it because it's more background. But did you notice any of the ambient score? Oh, yeah, especially during the beginning, the heartbeat where like as the suspense was building, like the beat would kind of almost like mirror like like a heartbeat, like pumping up like, oh, yeah, no, it's yeah, it's it's great. So, yeah, he is a composer who works quite a bit. Um, 
He's done Traffic. He's done Narc. He's done Wicker Park, Contagion. Uh, he also did two of my favorite movies, Spring Breakers and Solaris. So uh, interestingly enough, Nicholas Windingreffen approached him and said, hey, we've got a couple of songs, again, the ones I already mentioned. Could you kind of mimic their beat and their cadence to kind of score the rest of the movie? And that's what he did. So it's it's subtle and understated. Uh, but I think if you rewatch this movie, the score at all times is doing such a great job of just kind of accenting what you see on screen which is especially mm -hmm. important with so little dialogue so yeah cliff martinez big shout out to him and oh, andy sandemus yeah. fantastic so with that i think it leaves us with uh our chop shops So this week I got horror, you got comedy. Comedy. Oof. Oof. Who would you like to go first? Mine's not super in depth this week. If that if that means anything to you. Well, I'll say uh, as a comedy, I kind of wrote what I perceive to be the first like twenty minutes of a comedy. So it's incomplete, okay. um, but it is in my normal parlance, kind of a lot of acting out of the material. So I'll let you make the call this week. Wow. Just going to throw it right back at me, huh? All right. I will start it out with our horror version of Drive. So I didn't, I didn't, I left a lot of the core movie in there because it's one of those where when you love something so much, you don't want to, to mess it up too much. I just there was some some details I, I altered and changed so that I thought we could easily slip this into the horror horror genre. So uh, some of my inspiration was a little bit of Baby Driver, just a little bit and uh, some Halloween. You know, we, we joked earlier about Michael Myers, but yes. definitely came there. So the movie opens with the driver picking up two men in masks similar to the way it opens up in our movie but instead of them being just a random hire um he's actually a driver for nino and bernie the job goes mostly well with the exception of one of the gunmen uh winds up killing an innocent bystander uh before getting into the car and then the driver has to basically kind of like run them over so they get away clean and all that but they they regroup back at the garage where shannon and bernie are there waiting and they they see the blood on the car and they wonder what happened. And Driver obviously doesn't say anything, you know, uh, but one of the two gunmen jokes about blowing some lady's brains out and the driver having to cruise through her. So uh, everyone kind of goes their separate ways after that. The next scene is is Driver getting home and having a passing glance with the, with the neighbor Irene and her son before they both enter their apartments, kind of establishing that relationship again. And the driver grabs his signature jacket and decides to go out for a night ride. Opening credits follow through very much similar to the, to the movie. After the credits, we start with Driver um, at the stunt gig. We see him put the, you know, the, the mask on 
um, and do the, the car roll like it happened in the movie. Driver goes to the grocery store and takes Irene and Benicio home. The scene cuts to the gunman at the strip club. Uh, the strip club winds up showing up a lot more in my horror version of this, but essentially the gunman that shot the woman is getting drunk, getting maybe a little handsy with some of the performers. Uh, as he wanders out back to take a piss in a dimly lit alley, you see the silhouette of a bald stranger comes up behind him. He tells the stranger if he's looking for a show, he should head inside. When the stranger doesn't move, he gets defensive and tells him to fuck off. As he's zipping up his fly, he's stabbed multiple times bef uh, uh, before... Uh, falling to the ground and dying. The killer's face is never revealed. So, the next day, Benicio and Nino, or not Benicio, sorry, Bernie and Nino stop by the shop to give Shannon and the driver another job when they mention what happened to the gunman. Shannon is a little concerned and asks, like, you know, what happened, trying to get more information. But ultimately, you know, they, they chalk it up to, it's probably just a mugging gone bad, you know, that kind of, you know, around a strip club. You could see that happening. Uh, and they think nothing really more of it. Irene stops by with Benicio and Shannon tells the driver to take them home, much like the it happens in the movie. And Bernie and Nino um, are there and see basically how the driver reacts around the girl, right? The rest of the movie plays out very similar uh, with the driver and Irene um, getting closer and Standard being released from jail. Uh, at Standard's welcome home party, a shadowy figure lurks in the halls prior to the driver and Irene meeting outside. Standard is beat up but not because he owes a prison debt, but he's actually another member of Nino and Bernie's crew, but he wants out. So the driver and standard are put on a new job, uh, on a job with a new girl from the club, Blanche. Because I assume she had to be a strip. Like, again, that, that was the only thing is like, I didn't understand yeah. her relationship. And that, that had to be why, you know, the driver knew how to go back. Uh, while they're doing the job, another vehicle shows up. We never see who the driver is. The job goes south and Standard is gunned down by the second car instead of the the pawn shop owner. Um, and the car and the protagonist and, and Blanche speed off. Driver and Blanche have a similar conversation where he asks who's after them. Blanche is killed and the driver flees the scene with the money and goes back to the shop to talk to Shannon. Later, the driver visits the club to see Cook who set up the grab-and-go and beats the absolute holy hell out of him. He leaves him bleeding on the floor after finding out Nino set up the job and leaves. The next scene is Nino and Bernie showing up at the club to talk to Cook. He explains what happened, and the two of them wind up leaving. As they drive off, Bernie and Nino have a conversation about the East Coast mob and how they've got to cover this up before anyone else finds out. As Cook is leaving the club that night, he is visited by the same stranger who breaks his legs before beating him to death with a hammer. The driver receives a call from Shannon saying someone else or someone is picking off people from the organization and to watch his back. Nino sends a hitman to kill the driver, who is uh, who kills him in the elevator the same way, just stomps him, stomps him to hell. Um, after the brutal brutal display of violence, the driver tells Irene to go and makes his way to his car. Later that day, Bernie visits Shannon at the shop um, to look for the driver. The two have a similar conversation, and Bernie tells Shannon to, Shannon to uh, take care. And the scene ends with what looks like Bernie just leaving the, the garage. Later that night, Driver shows up to find Shannon is dead, having blood out on the floor of the garage. He grabs the money and calls Bernie and Nino and tells them that Shannon is dead and that he has the money and to meet him uh, to pick it up. The next scene is Nino being hit by a nondescript car and a shadowy bald man uh, reappearing. The man still draped in shadows attacks Nino. As the stranger is killing Nino, he pulls out Nino's phone, dials Bernie, and has Bernie listen to Nino's dying breath as he struggles to yell for help. 
Bernie goes to meet the driver, but when he arrives, he finds his uh, the driver's car abandoned with the door open and the lights on. Bernie starts to scream out and panic and um, says that he knows he's you know that the the killer is there. Uh, he does a short monologue explaining that he didn't know what Nina was doing, um, but he's taking care of everybody. You know, everyone who was a part of it is dead, especially if you know the the killer killed the driver. The only people left with any connection is Irina Benocio, and he can take care of them the same way that he did Shannon. They're um, they're all in this together, and he can help. As he finishes, a foot steps out of the shadow, and it's the bald man steps into the light. The driver pulls off the mask, revealing himself. He throws the money to the ground and stares quietly at Bernie. Bernie looks puzzled and says, you, know, you, you did all this, why? What, what, what did you have to gain? The driver just says, I wish you hadn't brought them into this. As he pulls out a knife and slowly approaches Bernie. There's a small struggle, but Bernie is killed and the driver returns to his car and drives off. It's unclear where he's going, but it's beyond LA and he's not coming back. So essentially what I wanted to kind of do is a, a kind of switcheroo where you 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 don't realize that, you know, the whole Jacqueline Hyde thing that the driver has been the murderer from the beginning. So there's some tension where you think the driver might actually have been attacked by the by the murderer, but it actually winds up being the driver who ultimately like I, I put the scene in the beginning where the gunman kills the innocent person just so like there's the motivation for a murder at the beginning of the movie again because you want to you have to establish that the, the person's there so that there's tension throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. For a, a, a moment, I was like, are you going to introduce another character and you're telling me that Ryan Gosling's driver has been killed? Because I guess, like you said, it's it's hard to separate a movie that we love from the chop shop. But I was I felt a level of anger for a moment <laughs> when I thought you were going to actually introduce a, another character and Ryan Gosling gets killed in this movie. So the way you set that up worked exactly as you intended. <laughs> very good. Very good. I wanted to try and do something more with the scenery of like that double sided jacket. I just wasn't sure how to work it into like this, the synopsis here where like, when he's the driver, he's the the white scorpion jacket, and then maybe there's a black scorpion that's reversed on the black jacket where, like, you know, the stinger is up and the scorpion's head is down, and it just winds up being that, you know, is it someone else that's come back to... And then, you know, you realize at the end that's where he reverses the jacket. Or, but ultimately, I just went with having, you know, the, the mask from his stunt. And then that's, again, trying to lay those breadcrumbs. If we see him put on that mask at the end when he's the bald person and takes the mask off, you realize, oh, that was the stunt mask that he's had from the beginning of the movie. So we can still hide his identity with it making sense. Yeah, and, and when you got horror, I was like, if this motherfucker does not take advantage of that mask, I <laughs> I might quit Hollywood Chop Shop, and you did it chef's kiss brilliantly. I love that. So that was that was my, my brief, but... You know, again, slight alterations, I think, you know, to make the, I guess the genre of horror, again, that slasher genre, uh, I think it works. And it goes back to one of my favorite, if anybody's watched The Mandalorian, one of my favorite episodes of The Mandalorian was kind of like the reverse horror, where Mando is basically hunting down the criminals. So it's like, oh, we're watching this as a horror movie, but the good guy is the one who is in the shadows taking people down. And I just, I love that kind of reverse on the idea. And then the reveal at the end where you realize like, Oh no, actually the good guy was the one who was the serial killer the hunter. Yeah. That again, going back to drive, that was, I loved being able to 
see through the eyes of the Michael Myers character for for at least one scene. Like you completely mm-hmm. understand their motivation. You can also completely understand why to the their victim they look like a a soulless killing machine. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, comedy. do you have anything else before I I jump no, into my comedy? I'm I'm looking forward to laughing at Ryan Gosling stomping someone's head in. Well, um, he does it with clown shoes, right? So it squeaks every time. He's just. Uh, let me do a rewrite, Brett. I'll uh, can we pause the recording real quick? Um. So this time I did have one inspiration that I wanted to throw in from a comedy perspective. Um, this is a deep cut, Brett. So if you haven't seen it, no worries. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, no worries, but it might help. Are you familiar with the film Drop Dead Fred? Yes. Okay, then that, good. That will help <laughs> things. Uh, so I'll leave it at that then since you're familiar. I'm not going to do any more background. Um, the first thing I did is I renamed Driver. His name is still Driver. That's his last name. It's Ricky Driver. (laughs) So Ricky Driver has spent his life traversing the Midwest, competing in low-level auto races. While he is dominant, the winnings are barely enough to afford maintenance on the car, along with travel. Uh, To make ends meet, Driver, that's Ricky Driver, uh, works at a local auto parts shop. Uh, One night after work, Driver approaches his manager to seek a raise, and Driver awkwardly stumbles through his sales pitch, leading his manager to echo the sentiment uttered by Nino and Drive, which is, you're not very good at this, are you? The manager tells Driver to give him another month, and he'll see what he can do. Uh, defeated, Driver goes home and enters his apartment and is greeted by a country-sounding voice off-screen. Welcome home, partner. You talked to Jameson about the raise. Uh, we having some celebratory beers tonight? Driver replies in the negative, but still requests a beer, and we hear the fridge open and, and some glass bottles clanging, and the unseen voice enters the living room, handing a bottle of beer to Driver before joining him on the couch. The unseen voice is revealed to be Bo, the bandit Darville, uh, which I don't know if you know that name, Brett, but that is Burt Reynolds' character in Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> okay. I like where this is going. Uh, Bo playfully ribs the driver, asking whether he's he followed Bo's advice about trying to get the raise. Driver says that he did, but he just doesn't have the same charm as Bo. Bo agrees, uh, but the two are interrupted by a knock at the door. Driver takes a swig of his beer and walks over to answer the door. It's the driver's landlord, reminding him that his rent is overdue. We see driver's living room from the landlord's perspective, revealing that driver has no beer in his hand, and Burt Reynolds is not actually on his couch. He is, in fact, an imaginary friend. (laughs) Okay. Um... So Bo, after this, is going to convince Driver to sell his shitty race car and use the money to go to Los Angeles to become a movie star just like him. So I want to have the lines grayed or blurred, the lines blurred, uh, whether it's Burt Reynolds or it's the character from Smokey and the Bandit. But all we know is 
he he's not real. It's just in the driver's head. Because I thought it would be interesting. There's so much silence from Ryan Gosling's character in this movie. What mm-hmm. if it's because he's hearing Burt Reynolds talk to him? <laughs> so almost like a true romance. I've not seen true romance. I have to be honest. That's the one with uh, Tarantino wrote, right? Yeah, yeah. Directed yeah. by Tony Scott. Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, Driver's going to follow the device and move to L.A. And he's going to meet Shannon, much like Shannon describes in this movie. Um, you know, Shannon's the same character. He, you know, works for the movies. He helps Driver get jobs. But uh, Driver is still neighbors with Irene. Uh, her husband is in prison. Uh, Shannon plays matchmaker again. Um, but now this is the the other scene in terms of kind of the early part of the movie. Shannon's going to be working on a hotshot movie producer's black Mercedes. And after the driver meets Irene and tells Shannon about it, he's going to offer the car to driver, uh, unbeknownst to the actual car's owner. And he's going to say, hey, take this Mercedes for a night. Take Irene out on a fancy date. Uh, Shannon assures Driver, he's like, hey, you you can't just take any old car out in L.A. This is a a mover and shaker town. You have to make it a unique experience. So Driver reluctantly agrees. Uh, So he borrows the Mercedes and and heads to pick up Irene. And on the whole car ride over, Burt Reynolds slash Bo, uh, he's riding shotgun and he's telling the driver that taking the Mercedes was a mistake. Come on, buddy, I'm telling you, Irene would be much more impressed with something classic. She reminds me of my ex, Carrie. I like to call her Frog. She was as wholesome as an apple pie. She didn't want to be carted around in some soulless German machine. Uh, which, by the way, Carrie is uh, Sally Field's character in Smoking the Bandit. <laughs> uh, driver arrives to pick up Irene and uh, pleads with with Bo to just get in the back seat and be quiet. Bo objects. Dang, buddy, we've been friends since your mom left you alone that weekend with nothing but some VHS tapes and that shitty 13-inch TV, and I'm already getting kicked to the curb for a first date. So again, (laughs) Gosling was talking about the character was raised by movies. I like, even though it's a comedy, I wanted to throw in that little piece of why he might have developed an imaginary friend of Burt Reynolds. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that, Bo climbs into the back seat. Uh, rather than using the doors, much to the chagrin of driver, he just climbs into the back seat from the front seat as Irene approaches the car. Driver and Irene will drive to dinner with Bo in the back seat. Irene will compliment the vehicle, calling it way fancier than any, anything she's ever ridden in. Uh, driver will nervously look into the rearview mirror, wondering if Bo will chime in, but he doesn't. Driver pulls into the lot of the fancy restaurant, and both Irene and the driver notice that their black Mercedes seems to make up about 30% of the parking lot. Uh, So basically, this unique vehicle in this Hollywood restaurant, it's just full of black Mercedes. Uh, And then, of course, Bo is going to make fun of it. You know, Shannon was right, partner. Real unique experience so far. Pointing out that, yeah, there's a bunch of Mercedes in the lot. Obviously, Irene hears none of this. Uh, Again, it's a comedy. So depending on how over the top you want to go during dinner, Bo can uh, it's a Mexican restaurant. So Bo can join in some sort of, you know, table side band as they perform like a mariachi band for Irene and Driver. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I just picture 
at a certain point he goes to do karaoke and sings ebony and ivory but burt reynolds is singing the other part so people are just confused because like he's only singing half but he thinks he's doing a duet i love that that's perfect and i was thinking too anytime Bo has to change costumes like if he's dressing as a mariachi uh, he's still going to wear his classic cowboy hat from Smokey and the Bandit. Mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe Driver could get put in the hospital at some point in a crash, and you got Burt Reynolds in that cowboy hat and a, a hospital gown. But again, that's just <laughs> that's on the cutting room floor. Um, so after dinner, Driver and Irene will exit the restaurant and wait for the valet to bring around the Mercedes. Uh, Bo will come out of the restaurant in the background, still dressed as a mariachi with a margarita in tow, and he yells out to the driver, go for the kiss, amigo. Uh, before driver can decide, though, Irene breaks the silence and mentions, you know, she's married to Standard and asks driver if they can take it slow. But just then the valet arrives with the car and we cut to the ride home. The couple will be riding with the only music... F- with only the music from the radio, so just silence besides the music, when Driver notices a car fast approaching behind them. Uh, The car begins to turn their high beams on and off rapidly. Irene asks what the hell's going on, uh, followed shortly by Bo popping up from the back seat. This is just like my movie, partner. You got a married woman and some bad guys in hot pursuit. You know what to do. And with that, the driver floors it. Uh, and uh, zooms along the the winding road, um, which kind of like the chase in the movie. Irene Mm -hmm. panics, frantically searching for her purse and her cell phone so she can call the cops, and she realizes she can find neither. My purse is missing. I can't find it. Uh, Over the roar of an engine of the engine, an unfamiliar ringtone plays from the center console. Both Driver and Irene seem confused as Bo pops up again from the back seat with a briefcase. Hey, partner, where'd this briefcase come from? <laughs> as he holds a silver briefcase. Irene opens the center console and finds a phone ringing. She answers. Hey, asshole, the valet mixed up our cars. Can you slow the fuck down? Cut to Irene apologizing profusely to Bernie Rose with her stating that they thought they were in danger. That's why they were running. Bernie then recognizes the driver as Shannon's guy and acknowledges his great driving skill and tells him that he'll be in contact with Shannon about uh, pursuing buying the race car. So basically he sees driver as such a, a great driver that he now is in on Shannon's deal. Uh... The cars are exchanged, and Irene and Driver continue the journey home in the correct Mercedes as Bo laments, this shit never would have happened in a Trans Am. (laughs) So yeah, that was my comedy setup to what would be a a comedic version of Drive. Just to kind of set the vibe. Burt Reynolds basically has an imaginary friend to Driver, which is why when he's silent, he's actually listening to Burt Reynolds give him advice. Yeah. Well, I I know Burt Reynolds is dead, but you could probably get like Norm MacDonald to play him because he did it on SNL. Are you saying that because Norm MacDonald is also dead, Brett? What? I, 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 I You're such a good actor, but I can't tell. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> The penis mightier. <laughs> Doesn't work. But yeah, I, I obviously I struggled a little bit with the comedy for Drive, so I figured let's and Travis I, I think that's a perf- tradition. 
Yeah, I think that was top. a perfect solution for it. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir. Nicholas Winding Refn, when your career finally uh, hits the valley, go ahead and call Ryan Gosling about this. And, you know, like in a Grand Moff Tarkington fashion, maybe we could just have a CGI version of Burt Reynolds from Smoking the Bandit. It's not about it. I want a CGI version of Norm MacDonald playing Burt Reynolds. Can we do that? <laughs> yes, actually, comedically, that works much better. So, yes. <laughs> Norm's people, if you're listening to this, talk to Danish director uh. Nicholas Winding Refn. So I'm wondering how Ryan Gosling, because Ryan Gosling has a no sequel policy, which is why I'm pretty sure most of his characters basically die at the end of movies. But like, I wonder if you could convince him this isn't a sequel, but it's an alternate reality version of Drive. You know, it's not a sequel so much as it's uh, it's kind of like Tarantino doing in Glorious Bastards. You know, it's it's a it's a retelling. I did not know that Gosling had a no sequel policy, which uh, spoiler makes the place beyond the pines make a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he will not do sequels. I guess that's also been an issue. Like in some of the research, he uh, really wanted to do a superhero movie, but I guess he, they, he, they tried to cast him as Batman for Donna justice or something like that. But like he has a, a strict, no sequel policy. And that's why he's like, no, I'm not doing it. Yeah, he dodged a bullet. He dodged a bullet with that one. He did. I just, Ryan, if you're listening, the no sequel policy and wanting to play a superhero, they kind of run counter to each other, you sir. You kind of have to be a villain at that point, which yeah. some of the best villains have died, right? So. Alrighty, well, I think that puts us up at final, final thoughts here. Um... Travis, I'm honestly not sure if you really like the movie. Is it something that you would recommend or not? It's uh, you've, you've kept this one pretty close to the chest. I mean, I would have to say, uh, you know, to the woman who sued over this not being <laughs> Fast and Furious, I would probably put this, I don't know, it's probably number three or number four if you want to put it in the Fast franchise. Uh, you know, there's no Dwayne Johnson here. But no, I, there's nothing for Nothing else left for me to say. I, I fucking love this movie. Um, again, it, it makes it hurt even more that Nicholas Winding Refn just will never make something like this again. Um, yeah, I own this movie. I've owned this movie for years. Um, I don't know if we've gotten into this at all, but uh, Walter Hill loves this movie. He acknowledges that it's kind of aping a little bit of what he did, but he also acknowledged that Winding Refn took it in a direction that he appreciated that was new. So mm -hmm. if it's good enough for Walter Hill, it's good enough for me. I love it. Uh, watch it, buy it, see it if you haven't. What about you? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing to that point is knowing what you're getting when you're going into it. I'm not sure if my opinion... I don't think my opinion would be greatly different. I'm sure it would have, there would have been a little bit of a, a transition period if you thought this was a Fast and Furious movie based on the marketing and it, you, what you got. It's, it is a fantastic movie through and through. It is a slow burn. Um, the good thing is it's only an hour, about an hour and a half long. So you, you have to get through an hour before it really accelerates into, into like some 
really gnarly action. <laughs> but I I think it's worth it. Getting there is a fantastic ride. Like it's it's a bit of a joy ride. It is it is I, I can't speak highly enough of I, I do I do very much love this movie. Um like I said, the only caveat I will say is like you, you have to be prepared because it is it's a it is a slow ride and you are it's something that you have to sit down and really want to enjoy because if you're just looking for a popcorn movie, you will walk away disappointed. Yeah, hundred percent agreed. I think, it, and when I say a slow, it's it doesn't have pacing issues. It's just it is a slow burn. Like it is not the intent of the movie is to sit there and and and, and kind of ride along with it, pun intended. But it is it is a very enjoyable slow burn. Yeah, and yeah, you say slow burn, which could be a negative to some people. I don't think it's a slow burn from an overall narrative standpoint. I mean, that mm -hmm. opening gives you enough adrenaline to take you. If you're adrenaline junkie, it takes you through the next 30 minutes of the movie. I think what you, you really mean by slow burn is the scenes taken individually are slow burns. You know, people mm -hmm. are much more reserved and quiet than maybe you would expect from a movie. Uh, but pacing, yeah, there's not a problem at all. It, I never got bored, but if you, if you are the type to get bored by some of these slow burn dialogue scenes, somebody's going to get their head blown off with a shotgun or their head stomped in like a watermelon or they're going to get stabbed in a parking lot. Individual scenes are slow burns, but I think the pacing is great because, like you said, they keep it under two hours. Mm. So, you know, a glowing seal of approval here from the Hollywood Chop Shop. You should definitely watch Drive. You should most likely own it. Uh, but yeah, that's I think that about wraps us up here. And let me say one more thing. I have not I've not watched Vanishing Point yet. That's uh, the capper in this trilogy. But through some of my research, I thought I read that there was a little bit of uh, maybe inspiration uh, from Vanishing Point to this movie. So I'm very excited to watch I, Vanishing Point to I see yes i could see that i just trying to set you up for for success here vanishing point influences this the same way 48 hours influenced lethal weapon so like that's kind of you're looking at some of that early like you'll see how it influenced things but you're definitely gonna look like okay this is the rougher cutter version of this and i expect that but yeah i'm excited mm -hmm. and i hope listeners are excited too uh i'm excited to see it's, the it's a foundation classic. that might have yeah. laid and set up drive to be what it is so yeah uh but i think next week has gone in 60 seconds it is yep and to clarify so, so i don't watch the wrong movie that is the nicholas cage version wait there's a nicholas cage version uh, I, angelina yes, jolie this, yes okay, yes. okay. Oh, oh oh yeah, yeah angelina jolie uh, so yeah, uh, hopefully we see you next week for uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. Brett, you got anything else before we roll out of here? That, that'll do it. So uh, I would try and drop a line from Drive, but he doesn't have a lot of them. So I figure that's why you decided to swap me here, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'm just staring menacingly into the camera, Brett, as I breathe heavily after stomping a man to death. So just... <laughs> Bye.
trying to make sure I use the lumbar support the way it's supposed to. I would just leave it low, and I just I think it's not. I think it's supposed to be higher on the back than what yeah. I typically put it at. My next podcast-related purchase will be uh, a non-folding chair uh, <laughs> to avoid on the ass numbness that that occurred in the forty-eight hours episode. <laughs> Uh, before we do the skit, Brett, are you aware that Winding Road is a play on Nicholas Winding Refn? No, but thank you. Oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I know we love to be cryptic because your shit, I'm like, I, I couldn't tell necessarily I, what all I've, this means. But. I appreciate that even more. I thought it was going to have something to do with like maybe the pacing of the movie or something like that. But yeah, no, it, that's fun. Okay, good. Right, well, there you go. All right. <clears throat> now for the performance. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> God, you're going to have to put that thing together like Frankenstein's monster, so kudos yeah, to okay. you in advance. It, it won't be the first time. <laughs> and usually it's, it is absolutely my fault where I'm just like, good lord. Like, yeah. All right. Also, I love uh, Charlie calls me when I swear and she's not asleep yet, so I can also hear her saying, Dada, don't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I don't think it'll be in the background, but I can definitely hear like I can hear the mumblings and I know exactly what she's saying. I mean, if you were using your laptop, mic, like I used to, you probably would have picked it up. 